Hello and welcome to this week's episode of What Your GP Doesn't Tell You, with me, Liz Tucker, the podcast that produces medical journalism, not PR. I hope my show will be of interest to both doctors and patients. And of course, doctors are patients themselves too. I want to talk about stories from the world of medicine that others don't, won't, or only very partially report. And I'll be exploring not just the science, but also the politics and money behind it. I'm interested in finding out what the evidence-based data actually tells us, and uncovering how this information is often interpreted or presented rather differently. One of the questions I've always been interested in is how much medicine knows about female biology compared to male. Because up until the 1990s, women were largely excluded from drug trials. So I wondered, what sort of impact has that had on what we know about female biology? And I couldn't think of anyone better to answer that question than journalist Gabrielle Jackson, who spent several years really delving into this subject to write a fascinating book. And amongst other things, she's discovered that while women may live longer, we actually have fewer years of quality life than men. And drug trials may now include women, but there's still a lack of research using female animals and cells, which has huge implications for women's health. But first, I wanted to say a huge thanks to everyone who got in touch to say how much they enjoyed the first podcast. Putting a show like this together requires a massive amount of work and resources, financial and otherwise. So it's a huge morale boost. I really appreciate it. And if in the coming weeks you feel able to support the podcast financially, that would be a huge help. You can support me on patreon.com slash you and on my website, whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com with PayPal. And now back to the reason why you joined the podcast today, the interview with Gabrielle. Gabrielle Jackson was first diagnosed with endometriosis in 2001, an experience that led to her book, Pain and Prejudice, which explores women's experience of the healthcare system and reveals how little medical science understands about the female body. Gabrielle is also an associate editor of The Guardian Australia. So here's the interview with Gabrielle. So Gabrielle, thank you very much indeed for joining me today. I think a lot of people will be surprised that actually we don't know as much about female biology as we do about male biology. Why is that? Well, because we have never studied it, unbelievably. <laughs> Almost everything we know about human health comes from the study of men and even male animals and male cell lines. One of the things that I really couldn't believe when I started researching my book was how much of the medical advice for women comes from like assumptions, even sometimes old wives' tales are sneaking in, or data that's just extrapolated from studies that's done on men or male animals. I think it's a really major scandal, and most people, including many doctors, don't even really know it. There's a quote that comes from Dr. Janine Clayton, who's the head of the Office for Women's Health Research at the National Institutes of Health in, a, in America. We literally know less about every aspect of female biology compared to male biology. So basically, across history, most of the studies have been done in male cells, male animals, male humans. Yes. And we've just extrapolated all that and said that applies to women. We don't actually know if it does. So the assumption was basically that women were men just without the reproductive systems. Yeah, women were men with wounds. And 
The problem with that is that they put so much weight on that. And basically everything that was wrong with women that didn't seem to be wrong with men was put down to that. And that's the entire basis of hysteria. You know, hysteria even comes from the Greek word for uterus. It's just that everything ends up getting back to somehow women's reproductive systems. And it's like, it's why illnesses that mainly affect women, like autoimmune conditions, like, you know, multiple sclerosis and lupus and rheumatoid arthritis, or things like endometriosis or chronic pain, they've all throughout history kind of just been written off. And the problem with that is the, the remnants of that still exist in medicine today. And you can see it really clearly when you look at some of the reasons women are given for why they have diseases like endometriosis. Well, even breast cancer, like half a century ago, uh, we were told it's a career women's disease. You know, people are still told who have endometriosis that they'll cure it by getting pregnant. It's just not true. So I suppose we like to think that we've evolved since this medical diagnosis of hysteria. But actually what you're saying is in many ways we haven't. No, we haven't. We still really have a huge data gap when it comes to female biology, massive. And, you know, when the endocrine system system was discovered in the early 20th century, you know, medicine kind of started saying, oh, well, that's the problem. You know, it's hormones. Everything's related to hormones. Um, And... uh, you know, if it's not the menstrual cycle, it's your it's menopause. You know, there's just all these reasons given without very much research actually taking place to discover if that is really what's taking place here. And what's been the result of this lack of knowledge for how diseases are diagnosed in women? It's tragic. You know, the the Biggest example, the most stark example is heart disease. That's the biggest killer of women worldwide. It kills more women even though cardiovascular disease is actually more common in men. And the reason for that is because the the physical symptoms of a heart attack are different in women to men. But because only men have been studied, all doctors are trained what the typical male symptoms are for a heart attack. And that has been really tragic outcome for women and even though like this research is not new it's been in the journals for at least a decade still today women are being sent home with anxiety while having a heart attack a a big study in 2018 you know only a few years ago in Australia's major tertiary hospitals found that women were half as likely to be treated properly when presenting with a major heart attack as men, and they were twice as likely to die within six months. So there's a huge amount of ignorance in the medical profession, but also, I guess, amongst patients, because I think if you say to somebody in the street, what's the typical symptom of a heart attack? They imagine sort of stabbing pains in the chest, which, as you say, isn't always the case. Yeah, no, and it's not always the case for all men either. So, you know, when we understand and pay attention to biological differences in symptoms, you know, we help people who aren't typical in in the male uh, side as well. But it's not even just heart disease. A UK study actually found in six gender nonspecific cancers, women were waiting much longer to be diagnosed than men. And and then, you know, when it comes to conditions that mainly affect women, things like endometriosis, autoimmune conditions, chronic pain, they've just, the, the delays in diagnosis for those disease are years and years. Some 
takes 10 years to be diagnosed because medicine just doesn't really understand much about those diseases yet because they haven't studied female biology. And I suppose they sort of fit in, if you like, into the cliche of female anxiety, chronic pain, autoimmune. They can be quite sort of non-specific and generally make somebody feel bad as opposed to having a particular single symptom, which is obvious. Yes, exactly. A lot of those conditions uh, result in generalised symptoms, which do make it hard to diagnose, but not if you really understand those diseases very well. In the study you mentioned where there was a six non-gender specific cancers and the women were waiting longer, was there any Mm. reason given for that? It wasn't really clear what the reasons were. One of the other findings was that some of the symptoms were different. So maybe that is an underlying cause. Um, it, it also found there was a delay in elderly people as well, I should say. But no, the, the reason for that wasn't clear. And one of the things that I was interested in your book is we think of women living longer and therefore I think the assumption is perhaps they're healthier than men. But although they live longer, they have fewer years of quality life. That's absolutely right. Yeah, our our active healthy years, if we just measure that, men are now surpassing that in women. And, you know, there's a couple of reasons for that. You know, I think COVID's a really good example, right? So viral diseases and infections like that often kill men and women survive them. You know, they, they survive a stroke, but they'll be disabled after it, whereas the stroke might kill men. You know, and a lot more men died of COVID. A lot more women get long COVID. You know, they survive the virus but they don't go back to their normal, healthy selves, the person they were before they got that illness. So have we basically got two problems here? We've got the diseases that mainly affect women, which are sometimes unrecognised, and then we've Mm. got diseases which affect both sexes, which exhibit differently for women than Mm. men. Exactly. That's it in a nutshell. And the problem is that we don't really know which diseases present differently yet we know heart disease there's as I said great strides forward in that understanding and there's a real there's I don't know what it's like in the UK but in Australia there are some really prominent campaigns to tell women about this these facts the women with who have preeclampsia or gestational diabetes or high blood pressure during their pregnancy are at much higher risk of heart disease and I think those messages are kind of starting to filter through But there are many diseases where we just don't know if that's true or not. And the problem remains with many illnesses that mostly affect women, not only that there's a real lack of understanding, but for many of them, there's huge stigma attached to them. You know, you just think of chronic fatigue syndrome or ME, you know, there's just so much stigma. No one wants the patients, you know, they're kind of called the heart sink patients. Even with endometriosis patients or fibromyalgia patients, no one really likes them. You know, there's there's kind of no understanding of why people end up in a state where they're angry at doctors and they're exhausted and they're anxious and depressed and they can't sleep because they live with pain that no one can tell them how to fix or even believe them sometimes. So it becomes like a really vicious cycle. And you've got personal experience of having endometriosis. I do, yeah. And, you know, it took me a long time to get diagnosed. I was just told that's you're a woman. Some people have bad periods, live with it. 
basically, until I just said, no, I don't want to live with this. I don't think it's normal. I don't see anyone else around me suffering like this. And so I insisted on getting a referral to a gynecologist who thankfully just completely randomly was an expert in endometriosis. So I count myself lucky. And how long did that whole process take from feeling that you were finally being recognised for having the disease? Uh, So I guess really from a young age, from 14 or 15, I had unmanageable periods. You know, I couldn't go to school. I couldn't walk. The pain, I would have vomiting and diarrhoea and just pain that I couldn't handle. So that probably started about 15 and it wasn't until I was 22 that I got that uh, uh, referral to a gynaecologist who kind of spoke to me for about three minutes and then said, sounds like you've got endometriosis. So I I had all the very, very typical symptoms for anyone who, you know, understood, had any understanding of that disease. So even though you had the really typical symptoms, seven years is still a hell of a long time to suffer with that pain. Yeah, hell of a long time to be told, put up with it, basically. But of course, there's some female diseases where people would argue, actually, women are better served than men. For example, the resources that go into breast cancer much greater than the resources that go into prostate cancer. Yeah, you know why that is? In the 70s and 80s, women started really fundraising. And when they raised that money, they said, we want to say in what this money is spent on. We want to help define the research that gets done because this is what we think would benefit us. And that changed everything. And that's also, incidentally, what happened with HIV AIDS. The patients themselves raised the money and helped direct where that research money went to. I think that's really interesting because, well, for for some women who get breast cancer and they get it young, they recover and they have a full life again for the people who have the best outcomes, obviously. And so they really were able to put a lot of energy into this work. You know, it started in the United States, but it really spread around the world. And that patient-led research changed everything. Uh, And that's just not happening in other female diseases at the moment. So endometriosis has had a real surge in recognition and awareness, and that's been great. But there's still a lot of money going into quite dodgy research, if you ask me. I mean, I did a story a couple of years ago, a study that rated the attractiveness of women with endometriosis compared to the severity of their disease. They measured women's breasts and hips and asked them what age they were when they lost their virginity. Um, It's now been withdrawn. It's amazing. How on earth did that ever get ethical approval? It got ethical approval. It was done by some very, very respected endometriosis doctors and they defended it for like almost a decade. Um, And, you know, I know that, you know, phenotypes, you know, looks can affect some diseases or be correlated with certain traits, but that's not what they were doing. It was just a bizarre. And if you'd asked, you know, if you ask any person with endometriosis, what would help them? It's like, help, help me with my pain. Not being like, rated by how attractive they, your doctor yeah, thinks I, you are. I don't care that if I'm pretty, I might have worse endometriosis. It's like, I want to know what's causing this and what's going to help me. So I think that's really interesting. Breast cancer has been a huge success story for women's health, and that's because it was women took control of the research and and fundraising around that disease. And I suppose cervical screening is the other one. 
Yeah, medicine has kind of looked at women's health through a bikini approach, you know, so the breasts and the reproductive system. So anything that has to do with that kind of tends to get a little bit more recognition. And I suppose there's a difference potentially between life-ending diseases like breast cancer and cervical cancer and endometriosis where people will live with it, but it will just reduce the quality of their life significantly. That's absolutely right, yes. And, of course, you know, money should go to life-ending illnesses. You know, there's no doubt about that. But I think the quality of life impact of some of these diseases has really been underrated for a very long time. And, you know, autoimmune conditions are a leading cause of death and disability for women. And yet, you know, there has been advances in autoimmune, some autoimmune conditions in recent years, but we've known about them for a really long time. And there's still not a cure for one of the roughly 100 autoimmune conditions that exist. The fact that all the early research was on male biology, and we then had the discovery of the menstrual cycle, meant until the mid-90s, women were largely excluded from drug clinical trials, which means there are many drugs on the market today that were never tested on women in trials. Yeah, it's absolutely bizarre. The, The argument went, oh, menstrual cycles will introduce too much variability into our study, so we've just got to leave it out. But then we're going to test it on men and then say, yeah, it's fine for women. Well, if menstrual cycles are introducing variability into your study, mightn't they introduce some variability into how the drugs are processed in a woman? And, you know, it's just a bizarre argument that keeps getting used today. There was a really huge seminal report in 1985 from the United States that found that this historical lack of research focus on women's health, I quote here, has compromised the quality of health information available to women as well as to the health care they receive. So it meant that for many women, when these drugs first came out, any adverse effects, the first time they would know about them was really given the drugs in a doctor's surgery. Yeah, exactly. And as a matter of fact, of the 10 prescription drugs taken off the market by the FDA between 1997 and 2000, eight were caused by greater health risks in women. (laughs) I mean, it's just amazing. And today, what's the situation in terms of the level of women in clinical trials compared to men? There's still, so more women, human women, are included in clinical trials. It's still not 50-50, though. In preclinical trials, the study of animals, it's still terrible. It's really bad. So that's interesting, isn't it? Because if we think that male and female biology is not the same, male cell lines, male animals will give us the same problems as testing in male humans. Exactly. And it wasn't until 2016 that the National Institutes of Health, which is kind of the biggest medical research funding body in the world, said that female animals have to be included. And I think it wasn't until 2014 that they tackled the problem of bias in preclinical trials as well. Yeah, there was a study 2018 that found there was problems with lack of information about women's health was due to serious male biases in preclinical and clinical research. So there has been since then, around 2014, 2016, that time, some moves to change that, but it hasn't really happened. So there was a huge study in 2009 which looked at 10 biological 
fields of medicine and it found male bias in eight of them. How was it defining this male bias? So it found that single-sex animal studies were basically five to one. They were studying men in five studies to one. So male animals were being studied five to one. Five times more than, yeah, than female animals. And they weren't really analysing for biological differences in the different sexes. And there was actually a 10-year follow-up study to that in 2020, and I spoke to one of the researchers, um, Nicole Watovich, her name is, and she told me that there had been some improvement in including female animals, but there was no difference, basically, in analysing the results for differences, um, for biological differences. And she just said, this is bad science. You know, the, the 2009 study even looked at the excuses, that excuse I just said that, you know, menstrual cycles or estrus cycles in rodents introduce too much variability into the data, so that's why we can't do it. They found that to be, quote, without foundation. But 10 years on, they were ticking boxes, but they really weren't analysing the results. And in some cases, they weren't even including the number of female animals they had used compared to male or vice versa. So the studies weren't really replicable. So just to be clear, studies used male and female animals, but they didn't break down the results between them. So therefore, there was no way of knowing if the male and female animals were responding differently. Exactly. A 2020 report suggested that this is still an issue, that researchers are still not collecting the data, making clear the differences between how male and female animals respond in the early preclinical trials. That's right. They found that while studies were including more female animals, they were not analysing the results for sex differences in those animals. So it was more like a box-ticking exercise than actually rigorous science analysing whether there were differences in how the female and male animals responded to what they were studying. Because that's the key point. The whole point you're including male and female animals is to see if they do respond differently. If you don't collect the data, you might as well just study one sex. Exactly. Yeah. And that and Nicole Waterwich, one of the researchers, that said that to me. She said it's just bad science. There is no excuse. The excuses that have been given do not stack up. And if you do a study that then can't be replicated because you haven't provided the correct detail to make that replicable then what do you call that it's you know no one should be getting away with that basically so I suppose the the question for for those of us who are female patients today what do we do with this information well I think we need to get angry (laughs) inform ourselves because a lot of people don't even know this is a problem and a lot of doctors don't know this is a problem they're not trained about the serious gender bias in medical research just doesn't come up in all the years of study. So a lot of doctors don't understand that the reason they have patients in their waiting rooms who just come back time after time with lots of different generalised symptoms, they don't know that the reason they can't help that patient is because medicine has never bothered to study those symptoms or that illness. They just are trained that they're the patients no one really likes and that it's somehow a personality fault. You know, that that they think that it's anxious, kind of teary, needy women who get these illnesses, not that the illnesses themselves may cause someone 
to end up like that because of how they're treated and the symptoms, which are so debilitating. So I think we need to raise awareness about this gender bias in medicine. I think we need to organise because the example of breast cancer shows us that when we do take control of research, major, major advances can be made and they can be made quite quickly. You know, medical science is a wonderful thing. It's incredible the advances that we make when we put our minds to making them. And so there's a role presumably also for medical education, not just for doctors in medical schools, but for ongoing education that you may need to look differently at symptoms in female patients. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not just doctors. I remember when my book came out, my friend who's a nurse read it and she said she used to work in a in a clinic that did a lot of endometriosis surgeries and she was just fascinated by the book and so she tried to give it to her friend and she was like, oh, God, I don't want to read about those patients. It's such whinges. I deal with them all day. You know, it's just didn't even want to learn about why they were whinges. You know, it was just like, those patients are terrible. This is what I've been trained to believe. You know, and I don't blame individual doctors and nurses, right? That's the environment they work in. This issue can't be fixed by one or two doctors or nurses alone. It's a systemic problem that needs to be addressed by governments committing money, a lot of money, to female biology research and to diseases that mainly affect women, to making that commitment and for for science to listen to patients about the kind of research that would benefit, they think would benefit them. And it's been done in the past. We know it works. So we can do it again. We just really need to get organised. Because there's clearly a lot of catching up to be done. I think one of the amazing stories in, in your book was even when it was discovered that heart disease in women was generally lower till they got to the menopause. And that mm. was because certain female hormones were protective. You think, well, clearly then they'll do a study saying if you give these women hormones later on in their lives, if that also protects them. But no, a study was done just using men to see if these <laughs> female hormones could be protective for them. Yeah, it's so incredible. And Maya Dusenbury's book called Doing Harm does an absolutely wonderful job of showing how many of those absurd studies have been done. Like you wouldn't believe it, but I highly recommend reading reading Maya Dusenbury's book to find out more about that. Well, Gabrielle, thank you very much indeed for talking to me today. Really fascinating. And it sounds like uh, all of us who are women need to take a sort of more active part in persuading people that we're not men (laughs) well I mean we just don't know we don't have enough information to know you know what parts of us are different and what parts are the same that's what we need to find out we have a lot of catching up to do we certainly do thanks so much for joining the podcast thank you so much for having me goodbye so I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of what your GP doesn't tell you For a new podcast like mine, it makes a huge difference in increasing its visibility if I have positive five-star reviews. So if you've enjoyed it, please leave a review on Spotify and other podcast platforms. And if you could share the podcast and encourage other people to listen, that would be a huge help too. A reminder, you can find out more about my podcast at my website, whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com. Sign up for my Substack newsletter at liztucker.com dot substack.com and follow me on twitter at liz c tucker 
Next week, I'm going to be joined by Professor Carol Sakura, one of the world's leading cancer experts and a former director of the WHO Cancer Programme. He explains what you need to do as a patient to ensure you get the most effective cancer treatment and reveals the appalling impact that COVID has had on the UK's cancer services, which at one point led to palliative chemotherapy being completely stopped, a process he calls barbaric. So do please join me again next week to find out more. And many thanks for listening. Bye for now.